Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 237. Today is Sunday the 11th of June 2017. And this interview is with Rob McIntosh, who is a professional speaker, blogger and all-around authority on wine, known as Thirst for Wine. In this conversation with Rob, we discuss the state of the wine business and the impact of new technologies. We look at the complex world of branding in the wine industry and some of the keys to success for winemakers. We also look at digital community building and how and why brands can build their own online. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Robert McIntosh, thirst for wine, wine guru, and a community builder. So tell us, Rob, tell us who you are, um, and what you're up to, and then what is your mindset? We'll get into that afterwards. Um, well, I have oh, I've been someone interested in the intersection between wine and, uh, shall we say, social interaction be social media but it, it, it's a bit broader these days um, I just like the idea of bringing people together around the theme of wine um, without necessarily spending too much time talking about the details of wine I think there's enough uh, wine tasters in the world already but uh, yeah I, I basically spend my time on Twitter and Facebook and I was I used to blog about wine and and uh, hopefully create some interesting marketing conversations around around wine and, and, and personal interests. And how do you describe your mindset, Rob? Well, uh, that's a good question. I mean, right now, uh, it, it, um, we're talking the day after the election in the UK, so I'm, so I'm both hopeful and apprehensive about the future. Um, hmm. I guess that also applies to the wine industry. Um, hmm. there, there's always something hopeful in development, but uh, it, it had... The wine industry is fairly traditional, and so it moves very slowly. So it's always slightly apprehensive that they'll take advantage of the opportunities before it's too late. All right. So, um, how do you? What's your business model in terms of making wine social and money? Uh, well, I used to be in the business of uh, advising uh, companies and individuals in the industry about taking advantage of. Social platforms, social media, and and so on. So I've been doing this for quite a long time, um, probably since about 2006, when social media first came on the scene, particularly for the wine trade. Um, it developed into organising events and conferences with a, with an element of, of speaking and talking on the side. That's how we met. Um, that ran. Sorry, I missed the question. Cause no, I was just saying that's how we met. That's right. So I, um, we met uh, when I was speaking at, uh, I, was, I was very interested in taking wine to people outside of the wine industry, which the wine industry generally is very bad at. So whilst I spend most of my time inside the trade, talking to other trade people, as a lot of wine people do, I also felt it was like my mission to find people who are already interested in the, the uh, platforms I was interested in. 
and and who were but maybe they're interested in gaming or, or marketing or, or photography or music whatever it happens to be why they were blogging and bring wine and the wine conversation to them so that uh, they were they, they thought that wine and talking about wine and engaging with wine was something interesting and relevant to them um, I think I was more successful getting them interested than getting the wine industry interested in them and so the intersection didn't really uh, take uh, take hold in way I hoped mm-hmm. um, but um, latterly I've, I've moved into what I, th- I feel is, is both an old and a new technology which is it's the, the concept of building digital communities um, around brands around ideas around uh, existing communities of people um, and giving them a sort of this digital element uh, so that you can bring people around from, from a broad further afield um, and so that's what I'm focusing on now is building those communities thinking about how to build and what, what should go into them how you uh, how you make them relevant to, to the community so that people engage with it um, so less directly about creating now content about wine and more specifically about those digital communities cool alright well we'll get back into that shortly um, I'm sure so I wanted to just circle back on the, on the wine industry um what, how would you describe the state of the wine industry? I mean, is it, is it another industry that has been completely upended by digital, much like media, much like uh, so many industries, or has it been somewhat immune to it? Um, well, a bit like, uh, it's a bit of both. That's the easy answer. <laughs> um, the one thing to always remember about wine, and people kind of forget this when, when consuming the product is that ultimately this is an agricultural product so it you can't really uh, re-engineer uh, let's say you know, f- producing milk because you still need a cow <laughs> <laughs> um, you know when you gr- when you're making wine it's not an industrial process unlike let's say beer or spirits this is an agricultural product you have to grow grapes you can only make wine from those grapes and you can only in in most cases apart from possibly Brazil, grow those grapes once a year. Um, so it, it, it is very cyclical, it's relatively slow, it's, it's uh, prone to environmental issues and climate change and so on. Um, so that aspect of it doesn't really change with technology. And, and, and actually people are quite interested in the traditional element of making wine in, the, in an old-fashioned way rather than, let's say, discovering a way to uh, create synthetic versions of it. Um, however, there are aspects, obviously, of the trade, like branding and communication and, and, and so on, which which um, are being affected. Um, it, uh, particularly the communication about wine. So the, the traditional gatekeepers between the production of wine and the consumption were the, the traditional journalists, and that has been completely changed. Uh, that was the bloggers and, and, and so on. But what ended up happening really is that we destroyed the, uh, the, the potential for actually making money from that. Uh, all, the, all the journalists got laid off. The, uh, the columns got cut from the newspapers because they didn't generate much revenue in terms of advertising. Um, and we've ended up in a, a very democratic but, uh, but less controlled world of, of advice, um, which is, is, has been filled with potential suppliers so, you know, there's a lot of people who think they have solutions like wine tasting note apps or label recognition apps or, or whatever it is 
but I, you know, I feel like they, they kind of they kind of miss the point about wine. And so whilst there's people trying to disrupt and trying to get in that, I don't think anything yet has really truly done that. So uh, I mean, just take an app that I use regularly um, is Vivino, and and those kinds of apps they haven't really done anything. To, I mean, it hasn't really changed much for the dynamics of the industry. No, uh, Vivino is probably one of the very few sort of standout, um, sort of real uh, success stories. Um, ultimately, you still have to make this product. Uh, it's a hugely fragmented industry. Um, uh, There's so many wine, shall we call them brands? There are so many individual wines um, that it's very hard to get any market uh, traction. And so there are benefits to having Vivino type recognition, but really, uh, you know, they're trying to move. Vivino was was there to sort of recognize a, a label and help you sort of identify a wine and maybe try and remember it. They're moving into the world of, of helping you then take that second step to to buy more. But um, and there is there's no there isn't a sort of concerted, let's say, delivery uh, brand to link to so as to really drive huge volumes of sales. Um, so it, it ends up being a, an app used by many people, but it doesn't fundamentally affect the, uh, the, the market of, of the wine market around the world. For now, it's, it, it strikes me as the closest thing to a Shazam for wine. I mean, maybe a real Shazam would sort of have a little dipstick that comes out and pokes its nose into the glass or into the wine and tells you what it is. Yeah, I, I, I think they'd love that idea. Um, the, the, the reality, though, is that um, well, let's just take the, the fundamental flaw of it. Um, you are going to be taking to, to engage with this wine. You've got to have it in front of you. So you've got to have the bottle in front of you to scan it. Now, Shazam works because you might hear a song on the radio or, or um, uh, you know, being, being played by someone else and you want to recognize it so as to then consume it yourself at another time. Um, with the wine app, you, you've got to have that bottle in front of you. You've already got, by definition, that product in some way in front of you um, to, in order to engage with it. So uh, is it, when's that going to happen? Is it in the shops, well, you're already there, so there's other ways to reach you. You don't need that app. Uh, yes, you can add information to it, but it, you're actually there. It's much better to, <laughs> to buy that product there than to try and take a second step where you've got to wait for it to be delivered. Well, at, the, um, at the same time, Rob, when you are in the store and you see you know, such and such a bottle for nineteen ninety nine. Then you might whip out your Vivino to see whether actually it should have been seventeen ninety nine, or you can, you know, it's usually cheaper. It is possible, and and there are tweaks like that. But um, I, the, the key is that wine, really, generally, it isn't important enough to any individual, to most individuals, for them to want to uh, have a dedicated app for that product. Can you imagine going around a supermarket and having an app for wine and an app for uh, toilet paper and an app for um, uh, you know soft drinks and an app for um, cheeses? You wouldn't do that. So why have a dedicated product-based app when really, well, if that's what you're talking about, which is, let's say, price comparison and so on, 
that it should be more generic. So the, the, the flaw in all of these things is that wine, although it is a, has a, a, an aura around it which makes it really interesting for a few people, um, it is not in itself uh, sufficiently interesting and standalone to justify all the effort that goes into it and, and doing these things. So uh, when was the last time you saw anyone other than a true wine geek use a wine tasting note app or wine recognition app? People have them, they use them occasionally, but they don't dramatically change their lives in a way that, let's say, having a Facebook app or, a, or a, even a Shazam is there, is there one you so can? I think, is there one you can turn us on to? In wine? Yeah. Uh, no, to be honest. <laughs> you have your nose. Uh, well, I, I, I think <clears throat> I think that one of the lessons that I would like to get across to people, and I, I have been trying to get across for a long time, particularly to the wine trade, is that whilst wine is incredibly important to us, wine does not exist uh, uh, in the consumer's mind as a standalone. Uh, issue that uh, it's not a, a problem that they need that is sufficient, uh, sufficiently large that it justifies the, uh, the need to create all these specific apps uh, or, or, or any marketing solution. So uh, you will probably never make enough money from it. You've also got to remember one of the things we didn't talk about earlier, but the, the, the result of this product being an agricultural product is that the pricing is very um, well, the, the, the margin built into the pricing is very limited. There are very few products that have any serious margin for producers or even or any uh, distributors to make sufficient money to invest in proper marketing and, 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 and so on. So um, the money isn't there to justify doing all this. So I would say we need to I, – I, I think what we need to do is put wine in new contexts and tell people – and make wine relevant to people where they are actually spending money, spending time, and investing their interests and their their um, attention, and that's where you get the benefits. So, wine isn't wine. Wine is uh, an element of travel. Uh, it's an element of enjoyment of gastronomy. It's an element of cultural appreciation. It's an element of history, um, or, or so on. So, there's many ways you can enjoy wine that tap into other markets and other. Uh, areas of focus um, but uh, you know you, you don't uh, it's not sufficiently um, it certainly doesn't justify the kind of attention that it gets in terms of you know magazines and apps and, and so on um, where uh, if you only had one maybe it would be successful but since there are hundreds around the world all competing for a tiny pie uh, nobody gets more than a sliver Yes, then it would be your classic complementary product. It complements a lot of other things like travel and, and, and meals. Absolutely, and it's very important that way. And, and it's, it, it's hugely important to the marketing, let's say, of supermarkets in terms of a product, uh, not because they make money from it, but because people who, who like buying and drinking wine also buy and spend money on other products where they make margins in terms of the, the higher-end products that they sell. Uh, it's very important to the on trade, for example. So uh, they make uh, restaurants make a lot of money from the sale of wines, um, which which um, subsidizes other parts of their business. Um, and if people weren't enjoying the wine, they wouldn't come to that restaurant often enough. It's very important to, let's say, tourism. If you go to certain parts of the world, um, not just in Europe, but in let's say South Africa, in Australia, in New Zealand, 
um, you wouldn't go just to South Africa or New Zealand or Australia just necessarily to go to, for wine trips, but you might, uh, while you're there, add on an, uh, a wine trade, a wine trip, which makes interesting, which puts that that country or that wine in the context for you, which it gives you an added value for your trip to that area. But you wouldn't, uh, honestly, there are very few people in the world who who plan their entire trip around just the idea of wine. Sure. So, um, Rob, if if you were, um, just I'm just interested in this personally. If I'm buying wine, do I want to be paying attention to the country in which I am, as opposed to where and how far it's travelled? In other words, would you prefer? Would you suggest better to take in France a Bordeaux? Uh, in California, you know, in the states of Californian wine, or does the tra- to what extent does travel impact wine? That's my question. Um, there are oof, a couple of ways to look at that. <clears throat> the the first would be obviously if you are already traveling and you're in a place and you want to understand that local culture. Um, the wine that they've created, just like the food that they eat or the beers that they drink or or the music they play and so on, are all driven, they're all of that place. And so you, you would want to uh, drink and appreciate and learn about the local wines because it, it'll make the wines make more sense and you get more out of that place. So that would be my first bit of advice. If you, if you mean... Uh, you are already in a place. Let's say you're living abroad, and you're, you're, you're or you're, you're talking about being in that country, and what wine should you appreciate while you're there? The wines that are available to you in those places are very uh, will vary a lot. So whilst in the UK we might think that we're used to having choice of wines from all over the place, so um, I'm having a I'm having a steak, so I want an Argentinian Malbec, or I'm I'm having uh, fish, so I sh- shellfish, so I should get my Chablis or whatever it happens to be. Um, that's a very British or, or a certain sort of uh, uh, British American view of, of the wine world. There are many other better ways to say, I'm having this, I wonder what of the local, uh, what's available locally would be relevant to this. Um, and also that impacts uh, the idea of the brands because they, when, you're, when you're in a different country, what wines are successful there have historical connections. So there are lots of certain Italian wines available in Germany because they're very close neighbours and they have a history of, of, of trade in those wines, wines that we, we wouldn't necessarily find in the UK. I'm thinking, for example, fantastic wines from the region of Lugana. Um, it's a small region. Um, it has strong ties to Germany. You can find Lugana all over Germany, so it's common. And people in this country, in the UK at least, and in the US probably never heard of it. Mm. So those things will affect it. Um, so it, it, it's nice to tap into that and, and find something new rather than, let's say, drink the same wine and expect the same experience wherever you happen to be in the world. All right. So you mentioned before, Rob, that you know the, the wine industry's the impact of technologies has been mostly about the media impact, or at least how the, the journalists are no longer quite as much. Uh, we've got more media, uh, more bloggers coming along, and, and, and communications have been impacted. But in this world where there's so many different wines that are, you know, so many splintered market, as you said, 
what, how, what's the state of the branding in, in the wine industry and, and how does one actually build a good brand in wine as opposed to another industry? I remember there's a classic quote somewhere. I can't remember when I first heard it, but um, it was from one of the very top Bordeaux Chateau, the, the, the first growths that said, building a brand in wine is easy. You make a great wine and you wait 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem with wine is that uh, it, it takes a long time because um, you uh, the, the iteration of uh, production and sales and revenue generation and investment and so on uh, historically has been very slow. Again, it's an agricultural product. There are people attempting to create brands now in a much modern way. Let's say, take a um, Lindemann's as an example or a Jacob's Creek kind of thing. There are actually no true great brands in the wine trade in the sense that people might understand it in other industries because the market is so fragmented. Um, be it by country, by region, by um, grape variety, by uh, vintage, um, and so on, that that no one product has any more than a, a tiny fraction of uh, market control. So uh, what in some markets, let's say the UK, uh, certain brands can take shelf space in supermarkets, that even those don't have real brand strength. So it's very hard to create what we might any, any other industry, any other marketer would recognize as a brand in the wine business. Um, he, uh, the brands, brands in wine come in many layers. So a great variety like Chardonnay is a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, it, and some people try and own certain brands, let's say. Uh, the grape variety uh, Malbec, like I said earlier, the, the uh, Argentinians have tried to own this idea of Malbec uh, because they had lots of it and it grew and, and it, was, uh, it was very successful from Argentina. And so now when anyone says around the world, oh, Malbec, their first thought is Argentina. That's incredibly good branding by the country. The country itself is a brand. So you think, oh, Chilean wine, dependable not expensive necessarily, um, good quality, fruit forward, etc. That's good branding as well. Obviously, there's, uh, there's national money goes into that. It's not it's not a commercial brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got layers of, of the um, um, the regions themselves, so Bordeaux, Burgundy, uh, Chablis, you know, all those kind of traditional things. And then you've got the producers and even below the producers, the specific wines that they make. So there's many, many layers to a brand. And if you think about that, it gets very complicated for the consumer to extract from that, to extrapolate any real information uh, from a single brand name, shall we say. If I said Jacob's Creek to you, I'm not sure what you would think. Um, they have lots of different versions of their wines. Mm-hmm. Um um, so it's it's it is very hard, and I and I think I I think the chances of creating a brand that has international recognition are very low. Um, let's say take an example like the ones we're talking about from Australia. They've they've got to, just to fulfil the um, the distribution of a decent sized brand in one country like the UK. They've got to produce. Uh, tens of millions probably, maybe not quite, but several million 
bottles of the same wine, consistent wine, just for one market. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they could do that at that level for many different markets so that consumers all over the world would recognize a brand and, and call it a brand it makes it almost impossible. They'd have to be buying up all the production of, of grapes just to stand and create a standardized product rather than actually an interesting product. Well, then on the other side, you have the Opus Ones of the world who are clearly not going on volume, but are trying to sort of capture an elite status uh, by being in certain restaurants, by being priced at very high prices, or at least you know, reasonably high prices. I suppose you could probably find a lot more expensive, but... Yes, um, and, and maybe that's the difference when we're talking about wine. There's, there's many, again, there's different layers to the market. There, shall we say, cons uh, consumer brands that are, have, are large volume brands. Um, and then you've got certain much more artisanal products. That are, are, or, and, and when you're talking about, let's say, um, Opus Ones and Screaming Eagles of the world, those are very tiny productions. Those are real luxury goods. In fact, some of them are... They're produced in such tiny quantities, and they have managed to get some sort of profile for themselves that they are sort of um, they are luxury goods that, that transcend the fact that they're wine. Um, in the same way that, uh, let's say, certain kind of jewelry or, or you know, crystals or, or something transcend the fact that they're actually jewelry. It's the fact that you own a Fabergé egg. Mm -hmm. It's not the fact that it's a, a piece of decoration that matters. Um, that is the, there, they've moved into that territory. Um, the, the sort of the one, the, the thing in the middle is are really the Bordeaux Chateau, uh, the first growths that actually produce several hundred thousand bottles of of a, of a wine. That each vintage that they sell for a large amount of money, people buy for investment. I suppose those are the closest to being that sort of brand. They sell all over the world. They're recognised. They have high value and so on. Um, those are probably the only things, maybe maybe certain champagne brands, again, who, who manage to create these sort of consistent products that you can buy all over the world, the, the Krugs and the, the Moet and so on. Mm. So, yes, it's, it's, it's a very complex issue because uh, you're talking about so many different producers all over the world. Mm. Potentially, all looking forward, it, it is possible that certain places might decide to... Uh, to amalgamate and, and create big, bigger brands in the same way that, let's say, artisanal products like car, the, the original car manufacturers who used to do uh, their their small handmade vehicles eventually got into automation and, and created the bigger brands by coming together. Mm -hmm. And now you you just buy a Ford or a Mercedes Benz, not a not a Benz classic. Um, you know, that's I think there is potential for the wine world to go that way and. The more we bring in industrial processes, um, the more that could happen. Yeah, more than, but not as much as. <laughs> more than, not more as than, much than, as. Yeah. So, um, Rob, I want to spend the last portion just talking about uh, your what you're up to and building communities. Because it is a topic that one hears a lot about. But let's say, first of all, should every company uh, be building communities? Uh, well, that well, no, is the my immediate answer to that. I don't, I don't believe everybody has the um, the uh, the kind of relationship with uh, between, let's say, the product and the people and and the consumers themselves be, with each other. They don't ha necessarily have that uh, relationship to justify the creation of a community. So it's going to be a wasted effort. Again, 
uh, thinking about your apps for all the different products, if you had to belong to a community for every single product you you bought or had any relationship with, that would mean that the engagement levels would be non-existent. So um, brands need to really think: do they want? Do, do they have um, the basis of a relationship with the product uh, with, between the product and the consumer, or the brand and the consumer? Or is there something that the consumers have in common with each other that would make them want to be part of something? Um, if the answer to that is yes, which is usually about them trying to achieve some sort of goal together, which ideally transcends the brand but involves the brand, then yes, there's, a, there's an opportunity for creating that community. Um, I think actually it's where products need to come together in a sort of collaborative environment to, uh, to say, you know, like I was saying with wine and travel, those things should work together. The winemakers of a certain region aren't going to make you want to uh, join a, a discussion group about their wines. But if you uh, put together the, the food and the photography and the music and so on, it'd be something you might want to be part of if you had some sort of relationship with it. So, um, yes, there is there, there are lots of opportunities for it, certainly a lot more opportunities than being taken advantage of at the moment, but mm-hmm. it's not something that everybody should do. Right. And so you said digital communities. And uh, my question is, to what extent does building a digital community differ from building one offline? Uh, I'm going to need six months to uh, get back to you. <laughs> um, that's, a very, that's an interesting question. Uh, we are, we're all used to making friends and, and engaging with other people and deciding whether we want to be part of something, whether it's uh, joining a political party or it's um, uh, uh, joining a choir or, or something like that. We we have an interest. We find other people that share that interest. We get together and then we decide what level of engagement we have with them. But obviously there are limitations to that in terms of our travel time and our, uh, our attention and so on. The digital community aspect means that you can take things that you do have in common, people, you know, it does come down to people and interests. Putting, finding what those are and, and finding, getting easier access to them to create something that you can tap into quickly and regularly in an in a, in a, um, in easier way. Um, I mean, obviously, this has been opened up with the opportunities of, of uh, social media and, and technology so that we can use our smartphones to, uh, to stay in touch with uh, different groups. And so we can choose to have a, be part of a discussion group about films and easily switch, having left a post about our favorite film, to discussing wine, and then from there switch to our favorite knitting group to, uh, to share our, uh, the latest pattern or whatever happens to be. Those, those can be built up and they can be very specific to individuals. Um, yeah, I didn't, I, I, I didn't mean to ambush you with that question, but it, it, I was just, just thinking about it. it, it I guess it's, just, it's the fact that it's asynchronous, that people can participate in the community anytime, anywhere, on any device. So it kind of makes for quick gray hairs if you're running a company and trying to build a community. It does. Um, and by the way, asynchronous is a great word that I should have thought about. So uh, thank you for suggesting that one. I'll, it came from what you said. It came from what you said. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, it is. It, it can give you gray hairs, but the point is um, uh, it, 
suddenly the opportunity is there. I mean, the problem with so many industries is we don't really know our consumer. We do do some research, uh, but it feels like it's historic information. It's static information. Um, and then social media allows you to have sort of conversations, but it's still not it's, – it's us reaching out to people um, and trying to interrupt them effectively when they're doing other things. The great thing about a community is if you do get it right, you have recognized the reason people want to get together, you can encourage them to – you can offer them the value – of it by creating it and letting them take part and then it is there for you to be part of and and support and get the get goodwill from and and provide value to uh, uh, whenever you whenever you want but it does still come down to real people with real interests that you have to um, have to connect with and they want to be part of Rob, I want to finish with one last question, which is in this world of craziness and lots of technologies, is there a technology that particularly excites you these days? Um, technology, I mean, obviously, I think what's we, if you, if we look back, if we listen to this again in, in five years time and, and uh, it will probably say, I can't believe you didn't mention X. Uh, <laughs> The one thing that I would probably be most remiss of not mentioning would be probably artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and how that is going to dramatically change everything we do, um, not just in our, uh, not not just in terms of promotion and, and connections between people, but just the, our everyday lives, and that will dramatically, I think, affect what we consume, where we consume it, what is pre- presented to us. So I imagine. That is very exciting. I'm not sure I'm the person to be involved with it. Mm. Um, I think I, I can see how uh, I can foresee how agents and clever um, artificial bots will will enable me to find more relevant products and messages and, and groups and communities for me, and my life will be better. I hope, uh, and hopefully, I'll have more time to take advantage of them. So those things excite me, and I think uh, in terms of industries, uh, I think. Things where we can participate, do collaborative work, and do good, um, as opposed to merely consume or things which I think are are good are the things that people will want to engage with. So uh, you know the renewable energy business, for example, the fact that people can get together, they can collaborate in in uh, creating uh, energy, storing it, sharing it, and, and do good for the planet, and realize that there we need to do this. Um, if we're going to continue to sort of live on this uh, small rock, um, those things I think will be, they will be much more exciting than they have been till now. Um, and the collaborative aspect, the, the sort of building up the communities of interest and, um, and recognizing that we have broader communities of interest like that uh, in many new areas, I think that kind of thing would be very exciting. Well, in, in what you've just said, you reinforce very much the, uh, the line, the editorial line in my new book coming up where talk about the notions the importance of collaboration and responsibility so thank you for that Rob you know it's funny just listening to you I was thinking maybe you were going to say your nose was your best technology you know your ability to dissect uh, beautiful fragrances and bouquets Uh, yesterday I was in a conference and I asked the same question and it was a bunch of journalists and uh, one of the one of the answers was my brain (laughs) 
Anywho, um, so listen, Rob. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Hi, how yeah? How could uh, someone connect with you? Track you down? What's the best way to to connect with you? Um, type the word "thirst for wine," all one word. Uh, it's the letters F O R, not the numeral four. Thirst for wine into Google, um, and you will find me everywhere. That is my sort of uh, personal brand built up over about a decade of using that. So whether it's Twitter, Facebook, uh, um, Instagram. Or uh, um, thirst for wine at Gmail and so on. You'll find me with that. Brilliant, Rob. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, this will be posted uh, on Sunday. So um, for anyone who's listening to this and thinking about the recent UK elections, we'll have had two more days to suss it out. What's going on? Thanks for ha- coming on, sharing us with your insights, and look forward to collaborating and maybe sharing another wine with you someday soon. Perfect. Thank you. Cheers to you and everyone else. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes, that really makes my day. Happy trails, and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. To rid me of the grave And heal me With all your imperfections That you mention in your Lack of self-security Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form As long as you would feel warm Wrapped in canvas Hold me
With all your favorite shades And we paint it with our fingers To show the world the way we feel Oh, oh the way I feel Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. <laughs> 